Aside from design sensibility, Space Force or SpaceX resembled the defense force of the United Federation of Planets very little. Their mission is not to maintain peace and freedom within our Federation borders, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, and to boldly go where no one has gone before, but to strengthen U.S. empire and create immense profits for corporations like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Blue Origin, and Halliburton, to name a few. In order to do so, they must first roll back the half-century of treaties designating space as the collective frontier of mankind. Congress passed legislation encouraging moon and asteroid mining in 2015, and in 2017, the Department of Defense announced it would treat space as a war-fighting domain by using satellites to coordinate use of force on the ground. This February, space policy consultant Rand Simberg wrote a column for Reason, equating the collective concept of space as socialism. He argued that space should be instead treated like the American frontier. The Trump administration concurred this year in its executive order, quote, Outer space is a legally and physically unique domain of human activity, and the United States does not view it as a global commons. Accordingly, it shall be the policy of the United States to encourage international support for the public and private recovery and use of resources in outer space. The imminent goal, however, is controlling life on Earth. Space Force will protect the rollout of satellite arrays for the purpose of spying and implementation of 5G networks. There are, of course, civilian uses for these technologies, but their main purpose is reinforcing communication between military installations, coordinating airstrikes, protecting friendly satellite networks while threatening hostile ones, coordinating an anti-missile space fence designed to protect the United States from retaliation should it launch a nuclear first strike. Some of these capabilities have already been showcased in January skirmishes with Iran. Yeah, I can see you. Okay, I want to show you something. Okay. You might have already heard about or seen this Space Command document called Vision for 2020 created in uh, the late 19, uh, 1997, it was created, U.S. Space Command, headquartered in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Here you see a satellite hitting targets on the Earth below. Space, the warfighter's edge. You see the, the Earth on this little pedestal here, controlled by space technology. So everything the military does today on the planet is coordinated, directed by space technology. They can see everything, they can intercept all communications, and they can target every place on the planet. When Bush, George W. Bush, launched shock and awe in Iraq in 2003, in the initial attack, 70% of the weapons that were used were directed to their targets by space technology. So in this vision for 2020, they lay out what they call <clears throat> control of space. Control of space is the ability to assure access to space, freedom of operations within the space medium, and an ability to deny others the use of space. So I think what the Space Force, uh, it, it primarily has two jobs. Number one is to give corporate capitalism total control of planet Earth. They could see everything, they could hear everything, and they can target everything. <clears throat> the other job 
is to control the pathway on and off the planet for resource extraction in the years ahead. Uh, for, uh, you know, the Halliburton Corporation that was heavily involved in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars has been for years working on a drilling mechanism for mining Mars. We're told that the rovers are driving around Mars looking for the origins of life. Well, in fact, they're mapping the surface of Mars. They're doing soil identification, soil sampling, preparing for the day when they can have mining. And you, again, the taxpayer paying for all these years of these uh, Mars missions, the soil sampling, the, uh, you know, the mapping and everything else. And when the day comes, they can go out and successfully mine. It's going to be privatized. Uh, there was a bill introduced in Congress a few years ago. Uh, thankfully, it didn't pass, but I'm sure it'll come around again at some point to give uh, uh, companies that go out and mine the sky make all of their profits tax-free. Can you imagine that? It's ridiculous. So uh, the Space Force's job then is to control the Earth and to control the on-and-off uh, journey to go out and mine the sky in the years ahead. But I want to ask uh, what your thoughts are about space exploration in general. Uh, are there any positive aspects to it? Do you think it's even a good thing overall that we've been to the moon and have explored Mars and have an international space station? Well, I'm not opposed to space exploration. I love the Star Trek series on TV years ago. But I remember they had a, what they called a prime directive. They talked about it in virtually every show. And it was do no harm. As you go out, you know, and you come in contact with other planetary bodies, do no harm. And that was an ethic that I really believe in. Uh, today, I think uh, we could say with confidence that the ethic behind the Space Force and Space Command and uh, the, the corporations pushing uh, everything uh, is... Uh, what I call a bad seed, a bad seed of greed, warfare, and environmental degradation and madness that has been planted into the depths of the soil and of the consciousness of, the, uh, of this earth. And now they're poised to carry this bad seed into the heavens, which I think is a colossal failure and a violation of uh, do no harm. So the question left was how long the communicative alien civilization would survive. Philip Morrison, a veteran of the Manhattan Project who personally assembled the atomic bomb that destroyed Nagasaki, made a bleak argument. If human civilization was optimistically used as the measure for the previous term, it should be pessimistically applied to this one. It was the youngest attendee of the conference, a shaggy-haired 27-year-old astronomer named Carl Sagan, who offered the most vocal defense of longevity. He reminded Morrison that they had already agreed on a vast quantity of alien civilizations, and out of that mass there would be a variety of results. Some civilizations could be like ours, perhaps destroying themselves the moment they discovered interstellar communication, 
but others would surpass or even avoid that moment altogether, moving on to a higher stage of wisdom and sustainability in which they could discover the secret to interstellar travel and immortality. It was a potentiality, he reminded the conference, that still existed for us. Drake split the difference between Morrison and Sagan, setting the final term at 10,000 years. That gave them a result of about 10,000 contemporaneous communicable civilizations in our galaxy, and the conference ended with a toast to longevity, ours and theirs. The result may have satisfied most of the attendees, but Sagan believed that the findings for N were far too low. He started a collaboration with Soviet astronomer Ayasov Slavsky, to develop a fully scientific argument for his conception of extraterrestrial civilizations. In 1965, they published Intelligent Life in the Universe, which asserted that there are between 50,000 and 1 million advanced civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy, and that we ought to attempt to contact them. Quote, It is of no use to maintain an interstellar radio silence. The signal has already been sent. Forty light-years out from Earth, the news of a new technical civilization is winging its way among the stars. If there are beings out there, scanning their skies for the tidings of a new technical civilization, they will know of it, whether for good or for ill. If interstellar spaceflight by advanced technical civilizations is commonplace, we may expect an emissary, perhaps in the next several hundred years. Hopefully, there will then still be a thriving terrestrial civilization to greet the visitors from the far distant stars. Sklovsky closed the Russian edition of the book by making clear his belief that it would take the eradication of capitalism and the construction of communism to make human civilizations sustainable. Sagan didn't exactly disagree, saying he hoped new systems could emerge more advanced than Karl Marx's still unfulfilled vision. He continued this coy distance to politics for the rest of his career, refusing to confirm or deny his belief in socialism as he steered SETI towards the explicitly political and implicitly anti-capitalist goal of organizing human life towards betterment and sustainability. An anti-war, anti-nuclear, and environmental activist, his love for the planet and humanity was best represented in the gold vinyl records that he and his wife, Anne Druin, also ambiguously Marxist, loaded onto the Voyager spacecraft as a warm invitation bound for distant stars. The messages were vaingloriously utopian, Billings wrote, excluding references to such entropic human failings as crime, war, famine, disease, and death. Messages of greetings for terrestrial leaders in 54 languages, combined with hundreds of idyllic images of our planet, songs from around our world, and a roadmap for how to find us. In the 80s, they televised their xenophilic conception of SETI to the masses with Cosmos, a show that made Sagan one of the most influential and beloved scientists in the world. By the time he passed away in 1996, their work made belief in extraterrestrial life and the value in attempting contact stronger among the public than ever. But this came at a time when federal funding for SETI was being slashed, alongside all public scientific and social spending, to nearly nothing. That research is today left to the mercy of private donors, unlikely to see any return from a search that could take millennia. It was a testament to how even science, liberalism, secular religion, could be stymied by that enemy of longevity which, he and Morrison both agreed, could not continue forever. Capitalism. Capitalism. 